Jocelyn Johnson has lived in Charlottesville for years, which means, of course, one time or another, she's been out to see Thomas Jefferson's home and former plantation Monticello. There's this um, kind of cautiousness of approach as a Black American woman. There's a protectiveness around Monticello, and there has been historically when I've gone there, which I knew I was slightly outside of, or which I felt slightly outside of. Then in 2017, white supremacists held the violent Unite the Right rally in town. Johnson felt the rally was meant to send a message to her and to other Black Americans. This is not your home. You don't belong here. If that was where they were coming from, if that's what they wanted to say, then I wanted to say something different, which is that Monticello could be mine too, in a way. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, we speak with Jocelyn Johnson about her new book of fiction, My Monticello. My Monticello is Jocelyn Johnson's debut collection of fiction. It includes five short stories and the novella also called My Monticello. She joins me to discuss what inspires her writing and whether she sees hope in the bleakness of her stories. Jocelyn, the title story in your collection, My Monticello, is described by the publisher as speculative fiction, but it doesn't feel very speculative to me. It felt just like fiction and very now. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think that the idea of speculative fiction is kind of taking something in the world and just really pushing it out there um, to the point where it's almost unrecognizable. And so people can think about the ideas in it, but it really um, kind of becomes its own world. And I think this this uh, collection and particularly the novella, My Monticello, is kind of the opposite of that. I really took ideas that uh, and events that had happened right around me and kind of just nudged them just a tiny bit into the future so that it's a really recognizable uh, future. I think that it's um, even in the few years since I wrote that uh, novella, I think the world has come even closer to it. Describe Monticello and the Unite the Right rally and the proximity and connection. You know, I've lived in Charlottesville for 20 years. The whole summer of 2017, you know, I'm teaching public school here in Charlottesville, and we're hearing these mumblings of this rally um, that just kind of kept getting more and more fervent over that summer until we arrive at August. The Ku Klux Klan has come and visited the town with protests to that. And here we are, uh, that weekend, you know, seeing people arrive in town, hearing reports, watching on social media, where people are pouring into our towns, you know, openly wearing guns, pouring onto the University of Virginia campus, chanting, Jews will not replace us, and into the ovens and carrying torches, and really creating a spectacle that let us know that this was going to be a really life-changing event. Um, Ultimately, you know, someone drove a car into a group of counter-protesters and and killed Heather Heyer and injured, you know, so many people and just kind of traumatized our town. So the connection for me with Monticello really came later. Uh, The following year on the anniversary and throughout that first year, our town was really reckoning with this recent history, but also kind of looking back at all these other histories. And so what came to pass was uh, I went to an event where a panel was talking about an opera sung in the voice of Sally Hemings. Um, Sally Hemings being an enslaved person who'd lived on Monticello, who was owned by Thomas Jefferson and who had children with Thomas Jefferson. And really not much more is known about her in her own voice. You know, there's been historical work around her. At any rate, this at this event, at the end of the event, you know, it's a panel of women talking about the playwright, the singer. This woman stands up in the audience and she's introduced as a descendant of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. Um, and I saw this woman later pumping gas in town and I just... 
it really, for some reason, just struck me to see this um, African-American woman, a woman who wasn't so different than me, and to think about that proximity to, you know, Charlottesville's just a few miles from Monticello, her being here, her embodying that history and what that might mean in relation to people who were so violently talking about framing the idea of America to exclude or to diminish um, you know, people of color and, and people who were different than them. Would you tell me a little bit about the story of My Monticello, the novella in this collection? It's a story of racist violence that drives some neighbors in the city to seek refuge at the former plantation, which, as you said, is not far away from the city itself. Absolutely. So the novella, uh, My Monticello, is the very last thing that I wrote um, to complete this collection. The collection has five stories and then the novella. It is a story personally about um, racial anxieties, about environmental anxieties, and that idea of really confronting history. And I was taking kind of these pieces of my neighborhood and my experience teaching and living in Charlottesville. And then I was kind of placing it with um, just the truly the trauma of August 12th, that, that summer and, and then that moment, and then kind of pressing in this kind of historic trauma and kind of pushing it back to not just the anxieties for now, but kind of the anxieties going back to the time of the founding fathers. Um, so I end up writing this story with neighbors flee First Street in Charlottesville when marauding white supremacists come and kind of claim where they live. And they they kind of end up barreling up to Monticello on an abandoned jaunt bus, which if you're a local, you'll know these little buses that we see around. And they are led by an imagined descendant of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, uh, the protagonist, Denasia Love, who along with her grandmother, um, you know, ends up kind of leading them to Monticello. And so it's really about her thinking about her history and her kind of fraught history and uh, her connection to that place, the good, the bad, and everything in between. Um, Would you like me to read just a little bit from my Monticello? I'd love that, please. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm going to read just super short, the very, very first paragraph of the story. All right. My Monticello. We claimed it first, this little mountain, me and my violet and a scattering of neighbors, all of us fleeing First Street after men came to set our row of 10 roofed homes on fire. The men came at dusk, blaring an operatic, oh, say, can you see? White heads rose up from dusty jeeps and dark hair thrashed in a harsh new wind like tattered flags. Ours, the men shouted. Their rifles gleamed as if they'd only just been bought, a megastore militia. Through the hasty breach in Ma Violet's blinds, I even saw a boy among them, blonde and sneering in a pickup window. Men leapt from back seats, sprang out of truck beds and rushed towards the faces of our homes. White hands clutched metal canisters, swung torches spilling flames. Bright shouts, the rising haze of smoke, all that and more rousted us out. From our patchy front yards, we saw bodies blur as some of our neighbors charged forward to try to stop them. We saw a teen struck with the butt of a rifle, his temple spraying red, a toddler flailed, diapered and clinging to its mother's hip as she sank, knees first to the sidewalk. What we saw in those moments riveted us, and then it set us free. How did you come by my Monticello? You know, it's always been Thomas Jefferson's Monticello, and the 600 or more enslaved people who he set to make it over the decades. You know, it's funny. I've gone to Monticello over the years. There's this um, kind of cautiousness of approach as a, you know, myself being 
a black American woman, there's a there's a protectiveness around Monticello and there has been historically when I've gone there, which I knew I was slightly outside of or which I felt slightly outside of. And so, you know, there's a lot of energy and time that comes with not kind of pressing too hard or just kind of staying at the edges of something. I think for me, the experience of the last few years and particularly for me, the experience of August 12th in Charlottesville when, you know, my fellow, you know, a group of my fellow Americans were basically saying, this is not your home. You don't belong here. You shouldn't feel safe here in so many big and small ways, not just on that day, but in the months and weeks that led up to it. It kind of inspired the opposite in me. It kind of inspired this desire to reclaim or take back or think about differently if that was where they were coming from, if that's what they wanted to say, then I wanted to say something different, which is that Monticello could be mine too, in a way, or I could, there's an access to it, or certainly it could be and should be, um, belong to the descendants, not just of Thomas Jefferson's white family, but also his black family and also the other people for which that was a home, um, that they, they may, they may not have chosen it, but it was home for families. It was home for people. It was where they lived their lives. And I felt like, um, the my and my Monticello, I really get to, and it's ours. And that ours is just, you have to decide how big that is. I mean, I think it has to encompass everyone. So it's ours. It belongs to all of us um, and, and all the complication that that brings. How did you think about using history in this story? So it's really funny that I wrote a, a book called My Monticello because I'm just a really lousy historian. <laughs> I'm kind of a mess when reading nonfiction. Um, but I did get really interested in especially our local history, and that's history as um, stories and stories that felt really relevant to now. Um, in the year after August 12th, you know, I was still teaching public school. We had all these opportunities in Charlottesville, Virginia, where that event happened to hear about um, kind of the brutal history, the parts of history that had not been highlighted. Uh, I went to a series of talks where people were talking about kind of um, the history of Vinegar Hill, which is a neighborhood in Charlottesville that was demolished, that was predominantly black, to make way for the downtown mall and other uh, spaces. I learned more about um, UVA and the idea that, you know, I just hadn't really confronted the idea that the spaces I was in, you know, ones that had been built by enslaved people. The fact that there is a, you know, the block where slaves were sold is right, you know, in our downtown space near City Hall. It just hadn't really confronted that. Um, and so it really drew me into history. And I got to hear stories, for instance, of um, students who helped desegregate the schools uh, in Charlottesville, you know, coming back. It really just kind of drew people to tell more of the story and different versions of the story. And so I really got interested in that. And one thing I will say about Monticello, um, the foundation, is that they've, you know, slowly, sometimes awkwardly, but definitely over the years, changed their perspective to include and to encompass descendants, the stories of descendants, and the realities, you know, some of the realities of the enslaved people who lived there. So I really relied on, you know, their material as well. And the best thing is I just went to the house. Because this story is set not in Thomas Jefferson's Monticello of the 1700s, but in, you know, Monticello right now, the historic site that is a tourist site that has a gift shop, that has a cafe. It was really interesting to walk around the grounds and to think about what my characters would be experiencing and what they would know about it as opposed to this historical view and what their family stories might be related to it and just how that space would work for them. Describe a little bit about the first story in the collection, Control Negro, and where that comes from. Sure. So 
The first story uh, in the collection, Control Negro, um, that was kind of the beginning of the idea that these stories would all be connected. Uh, it's the story of, I call it a Frankenstein-like story um, of a professor, a college professor. It's written in the form of a letter. So he's kind of writing this semi-confessional uh, letter to his son, and he's describing this experiment, which is his life, but also his interaction with his son's life um, that he's been furtively um, conducting to kind of compare um, the lives of, of his son, this young Black man who doesn't even know that he is his father, to these students he has, which he calls ACMs, um, Average American Caucasian Males. Um, and the story really came to me in part because of an incident of something that happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, while I was living there um, in 2015. A student, um, a University of Virginia honor student, was bloodied by uh, officers. We call them alcohol beverage control officers on right near campus. Um, the student was bloodied by officers after he was turned away from a bar. Basically, the idea being maybe his ID was not legitimate. A video was taken of him bleeding on the ground, really uh, outraged and upset. And it led to a look at why that was the response or where this, you know, how did it get to that? And it really echoed acts of police brutality um, and, and just violence towards Black people that really resonated. And this was, you know, before George Floyd, before Ahmaud Arbery, before, you know, some of the more recent, very public um, incidents of violence. But it was in a long tradition of violence. Um, and so it was kind of, the story is about who gets to walk safely in the world? What is it, the cost of that? What do you have to, what do you have to do? And so in the story, the professor father is wondering if he can control enough aspects of his son's life um, for America to, to bestow her promise on him as well um, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If he is perfect enough, is he, if he is, or if he is just like those other boys, what will the outcome be? So it's kind of a question, a dark question <laughs> um, about, you know, what's asked, what's asked of us. <laughs> I also love the piece in the collection called Buying a House Ahead of the Apocalypse. Will you read a little bit from that one? This is a story in the form of a checklist suggesting that we're all just trying to find some sense of normalcy and security in the midst of this feeling of dread and impending doom. Absolutely. This story was really close to my heart. I, I think I wrote it, um, it's probably <laughs> the most about myself, just in the sense that, you know, we're all dealing with like environmental anxieties, but then we still want to like have nice things, right? So, <laughs> you know, I think there's this way in which we want to, you know, we're like, we really want to deal with uh, global warming, but but I still am going to ship things from Amazon. And, you know, I wrote this before the pandemic, and I think a lot of it resonates with what came to pass when we were all, you know, hoarding toilet paper and worrying about, you know, whether we had a garden in the backyard and what we were going to eat and if the supply chain was going to hold up. Um, also, there's this way, this there's this kind of, thought I have a lot about how do you plan for the future when the future feels so uncertain? And how do you plan for the future when it feels like there's this kind of imminent collapse? You know, how are you, how do you invest in something? How do you, how are you aspirational? How does that change how you relate to the future? And of course, as you said, the stories in a, the form of a to-do list, which I have crazy to-do lists. I just have like lists and maps and I, you know, this idea of trying to control what's uncontrollable through this form. So that it's a really short story in, in the form of a list. So I will read, um, I'm just going to read maybe just one of the little bullets. So the story's in a series of bullets. Okay. 
buying a house ahead of the apocalypse. Ask your realtor in her carmine suit about the crack snaking through the edge of the kitchen tile. Ask her about the peeling shutters. Could they contain lead? Considering these and other defects, would the sellers lower their asking price? Would the sellers throw in that generator shining in cobwebs in the corner of their unfinished basement? Explain, you're looking for something eclectic, a house with a wood stove, a gravity-fed spring, don't confess that your current landlord has blocked your number as your basement rental slowly fills with water. Rivulets run like beads down your easternmost wall and a bloom-like mold invades your nostrils. Some nights you wake floating, your nose grazing the ceiling. And then you have the ending of the thing. Beg forgiveness that you failed to pray or march or vote or work soon enough, or hard enough, and then find a house on a hill while the interest is low. Breathe in, check the listings, refresh, refresh, refresh. <laughs> We're all there. Yeah, I think there's like a, we have this cycle of worry and then hope and then avoidance. And then in our worlds, I think are very, at least mine, a lot of ours have been funneled through social media and through our computers, uh, whether it's for our social life or for our work life. And I think that is that compression is really interesting and, and I think probably hard on us, honestly. You have said that you use writing to help you figure things out. How so? My first um, job is an art teacher and as an art teacher, you know, I take classes to work on art. And there was a class I took called Drawing as a Language of Thought. And I really loved the idea of this class because it was like, we're not going to draw to show what you know about something, to describe it. We're going to draw to figure out something about it. And I think that's how I often approach writing. Something moves me or captures my attention or is interesting or often irritating to me, you know, and I'm like, what is that? And how, how do I, what, what is that thing? What are the contours of it? What does it mean to me? What is, what is my relationship to it? Um, what happens if I press on it? And I think that, you know, these stories and all the stories that I write often are about a question, an irritation, something that troubles me, something that keeps me up at night. And then writing around it and just trying to, like that list story, trying to put it into a form where I can both contain it and also kind of externalize it so that other people can worry over it with me. <laughs> if I can write it into a story and put it into the world, even in a small way, then it doesn't have to be entirely mine to worry over. So, You know, there are so many dystopian images and bits of history that you draw on for my Monticello. You know, the the African-American community preyed upon by this mob of angry young alt-writers. Um, the young Black student at the University of Virginia who's attacked for just a minor little skirmish um, outside a bar one night. The, the worry about the environment, and I know you have grave worries about the environment and the world our kids are inheriting. Would you say, in spite of all that, your collection feels hopeful to you? I know. It's so funny. I I think about stories so much, and I think about often when I'm when I'm in taking media, what is this telling me about the world? What is this story telling me about the world? Um, especially... Um, during this political period where I think people have really weaponized stories. I think uh, QAnon, for example, I think if those stories can make people, in my estimation, do harm in the world to themselves and to others, there's got to be stories that will help, that could just equally inspire people to help and serve and work together. Um, I think that I definitely desperately want to be part of that second group. But these are really hard stories I've written. They certainly aren't um, simplistic. 
uh, the protagonists are fully realized and often very flawed people. So I think the way that this is hopeful is one that I really think about community, about relationship, about, you know, children and parents and all those things that are joyful and important to all of our lives. And then there's this kind of other way. I was reading um, Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. I've read her before, but I just read that uh, particular novel. And it led me to an essay she wrote a long time ago in Essence Magazine. And the essay is called Rules for Predicting the Future. And basically, just paraphrasing Octavia Butler, um, you know, she wrote speculative fiction legitimately. She wrote science fiction. She wrote about aliens. She wrote about time travel, kind of really always thinking about race and gender as part of that because she's this, she was a black woman. And so those things are just embedded into all of her super imaginative and very diverse and, and really amazing work. Um, at any rate, in her essay, Rules for Predicting the Future, she says something to the effect of, trying to to see what's happening and what will happen in the future and to offer warnings is in itself a kind of hope. And so I think for me, it kind of goes back to that idea of if I can tell you what I'm seeing and feeling, if I can share this perspective with you, the reader, then, and if there's problems, if there are issues that we need to solve, to focus on them is a kindness and to focus on them is hopeful because I, I want us to, I don't know all the answers, much smarter people than me are out there, but I certainly want us to be, to look at this, to work on this and to work together on it. Well, Jocelyn Nicole Johnson, thank you for talking with me and good luck on your new book, Just Around the Corner. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And um, thank you so much for having me. Jocelyn Johnson's new book, My Monticello, is out next month and available for pre-order right now. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. So-called cancel culture isn't new, and before we had a word for it, one of the best-known examples was Salman Rushdie. In 1989, Ayatollah Khomeini issued a fatwa against Rushdie in response to his book The Satanic Verses. Quickly, private funders put a bounty on his head and called for his assassination. But now, decades later, Rushdie is still writing. Penny Tyson is a professor of English at Virginia Military Institute. She says Rushdie's new works tell the story of his new identity as an American immigrant. Penny, what had Rushdie written in Satanic Verses that had so outraged the Muslim community? He, when he was reading history at Cambridge University, he came across the story of how um, Muhammad, when he was hearing the verses recited to him, actually heard a verse that was recited by the devil and initially included it in the Quran and then is supposed to have pulled it out later, realizing, no, this is, this is a satanic verse. It's not a verse from God. But there's a lot of controversy about that story and whether that story is actually true. So part of the satanic verses investigates that. And had no one else written in such a blasphemous way? Why satanic verses? Why had that caused a fatwa? I think part of it has to do with, um, even before the fatwa, there were protests within England itself. Rushdie was shocked that there were groups of, you know, Asian Muslims who came forward and said, this is a horrible book. He should not have published this book. This book makes us look bad to the West. So this publication in 1988 
also came at a very historical political moment between the West and what was happening in certain parts of the Muslim world, specifically in Iran. And so Rushdie's book was published in the midst of all that. It was such a horrifying episode, the idea that no matter where you went in the world, someone would hunt you down and murder you. Exactly. And of course, he survived that, but people around him were not so lucky. Yes. Um, there was one person in particular, his Japanese translator was attacked in an assassination attempt and he died. There was an Italian translator who survived the assassination attempt. And then there was a lot of fear that bookstores were going to be blown up, that publishing houses would be blown up. And so bookstores were pulling the books off of the shelf. You know, there had been window displays and then suddenly those were pulled. Um, people couldn't find the book for a while because, again, no publisher wanted to let anybody know that they had any, and the same with the bookstores. It seems like the most horrific and ultimate example of the worst of cancel culture. <laughs> yes, that is, that's an overused term um, <laughs> because people sort of say it like, well, somebody's now disagreed with what I said, but literally, you know, he was in hiding for 10 years. He would come out occasionally for some unscheduled things, but he by and large was fearful for his life for a good decade. When did he move to England and what were his views of his adoptive country early on? He was born in uh, Bombay, Mumbai, but he also was raised in a British school system, you know, read all of the literature you would have read if you were in the U.S., you know, at a private school. He moved to England in 1961. His father sent him there to go to rugby, which is a private school in our way of talking about it. And he was 14 at the time. And he suddenly realizes, I don't know all of the cultural elements here. He writes about trying to eat a kipper and not realizing that you're supposed to just eat the little bones that's in a kipper, which is a little fish that British people will have for breakfast. And the other kids laughed at him because 14, 15, 16-year-old kids are going to laugh at each other. And there were issues of, you know, race, and he was called various things. And so that was his first experience of being, you know, the outsider in a racialized way. His family were Muslim, so he was born in Bombay, Muslim minority within India itself. So he writes about always feeling like he was kind of in a minority group. But then the racism and also the, the way in which Britain looked at its former colonies um, as sort of less than uh, Britain being the powerful place, the place where um, you should want to be, but even if you come here as part of our former colonies, you're still not quite good enough. It's amazing. So he leaves India, he embraces the UK, but feels like an outsider, feels largely rejected. But he's also receives a lot of criticism in India from people who say he didn't strongly enough reject that colonialism, that yes. he sort of embraced the British Empire. Yes. And one of the things that, that he sort of argues for, he shows you in his novels, and then there are some essays he writes where he argues for this idea of, of mixtures and of hybridity. And so... I think early on in the evolution of post-colonial literature, that was also something that writers and, and critics were interested in. And then it became a little more looking for a kind of authenticity. And for Rushdie, that desire to find authenticity is really aligned with this idea of trying to be pure. And he argues that if you're trying to be pure, then you're really you're trying to halt anything new being born, and that's really not the way the world functions. He has a great line about being for literature where um, mongrels. He says here, the satanic verses celebrates hybridity, impurity, intermingling, the transformation that comes of new and unexpected combinations of human beings, cultures, ideas, politics, movies, songs. It rejoices in mongrelization. And I'll stop in that part of the quote because I think in this country we're going through a cycle of trying to figure out, you know, what are we as a nation? Who counts as American? You know, there's been intermingling and mixing all along in American history, but Rushdie always, he looks back globally and points to so many places where there have been these border crossings, these 
transformations and minglings. And he really wants to celebrate that. Do you see that in one of his recent books called The Golden House? Yes, I do. So in The Golden House, we have a main figure who is trying to escape his past in India. So he moves to New York City. He's very wealthy. We find out that his money has been earned, if you can say that, through a life of crime in India. And when he comes to the U.S., he's sort of in hiding, so he renames himself. So he renames himself Nero Golden and tells his three sons, you choose new names. This is a place we are going to wipe out our old identity. We're going to be completely new here. Um, And it doesn't work very well. And the way the novel ends, you can see that they're moving into the next generation. And it's through adding to and not trying to cut off the things that you were before you made the move here. The other thing that really intrigues me and that I think is part of Rushdie kind of really beginning to expand on a sort of third stage for himself in his 70s, this being an ethnic American writer, is there is um, one house, the Golden House itself, which is in a, a sort of brownstone area. They all share a common backyard, and it's a very wealthy neighborhood in the Greenwich Village. And then um, one, the main character, Renee's girlfriend, Suchitra, she lives in a little two-room apartment with a view of the Hudson. And what I see him doing in the Golden House is kind of laying out these various neighborhoods within New York City, kind of showing you what they're like, giving you the sense that he really has lived in New York City long enough to sort of know the tastes of the place, um, the way in which people view things from those places. You know, his time in New York and in America has spanned more than 20 years now. It started with his embrace of the war after the 9-11 attacks. And he's changed a lot politically and the lens through which he sees the world around him in America. Do you think his view is more truthful? I think his view is more exploratory, perhaps. I think initially he very much bought into the idea of America as this place of exceptionalism. And again, the the 9-11 attacks hit very close to home for him, literally, but also emotionally, because he had just come out of a decade of hiding um, in fear from Islamic terrorism. So initially, he was very much sort of a a booster for um, America's military response to that. But once the, the forever war, as my students will call it sometimes, moved into 2003 when we, you know, went into Iraq, that's when he started questioning, you know, should should the U.S. be doing this? He's always been conscious of both Britain and the U.S. as imperial powers. And so he wasn't questioning that power, exploring it so much in his writings when he first came into New York City, but that really has changed over the last couple of decades. It must be the right spot for Rushdie right now because um, New York must feel like a place where he can add his layer, right? Yes, I think so. In a recent interview, he talked about living within sort of concentric stories. And also at the age of 74, of course, the India that he knew as a boy growing up is just not there anymore because things change so rapidly. When I returned to San Diego to visit family, you know, none of it is the same as when I was growing up because it's it's been just decades. So there's a way in which India is never going to be what Rushdie remembers, um, but it's kind of one of his concentric circles of story. And I like that idea because even a student in my class who maybe doesn't know that many stories yet, maybe grew up in the same town in which he or she was born with family that might go back several generations in that particular town, I like to get them, um, I like to invite them in with the idea of adding sort of circles of stories to the stories that they've lived and also the stories that some of the people around them might know. Even if they never left Lexington, and the minute I say that in class, they all groan because they're like, oh man, Lexington <laughs> is too small. I said, even if you never leave Lexington, the world comes into Lexington, whether it's because we've got international students or because you're on your internet or because you're buying products that are coming here from all over the world. So we're 
in a place in human history where we're already intermingled with each other. And I think Rushdie can help us to consider that and to see some of the challenge in it, but also to see some of what can be gained by looking at some of those, you know, concentric circles of story and of culture and of influence. Penny Tyson, it was so fun talking with you. Thank you for talking and with good reason. Thanks for having me. Penny Tyson is a professor of English at Virginia Military Institute. On the surface, the Tigger movie and Anne of Green Gables don't have a lot in common. But if you look a bit closer, they both touch on an incredibly popular theme in stories for kids, adoption. Kim Gaynor is a professor of English at Radford University. She explores why kids are so obsessed with reading about adoption and how these stories help shape who we are. Kim, you became a mother through adoption. What was that experience like for you? How did you come around to, this is right for me? I had a lot of experience taking care of children. And I really just, I think, had a motherly instinct. As soon as I had an offer of a tenure-track position and I knew I would be financially stable, I therefore applied to adopt. So I went with international adoption, and I was assigned uh, a child in Peru. And uh, six weeks later, I was back on a plane uh, heading to Miami and uh, launched into motherhood. Uh, She arrived with the name Alejandra. I named her after my mother. So she's Patricia Alejandra. And uh, generally, though, of course, she's just Patty. You said because of your history with Patty, you started noticing early on that stories of adoption were everywhere in the kids' books, movies that you were reading and seeing. Yes, that's true. When Patty was little, I immediately noticed, for example, in the animated movies. We'd watch a lot of animated movies, so uh, I can reel off Disney movies, uh, Tarzan, Hercules, the Tigger movie. Uh, Each and every one of those, you have a character who becomes increasingly conscious that they're not living with their biological uh, family, and and that fact uh, troubles them. In terms of uh, uh, stories, well, The Wizard of Oz, uh, for example, for children's books, The Jungle Book, it actually was adapted fairly recent one in 2018. I think it's called uh, Mowgli, uh, The Legend of the Jungle. And the director turns it very, very much into an identity formation narrative. He is struggling with the awareness that this is not his birth family In Kipling's story, he's accepted into the wolf pack. But in the 2018 version, he, in fact, is only provisionally accepted into the wolf pack. He has to pass a test in order to gain full membership. There's one scene in which he actually says to Bakira the panther, why am I different to the other wolves? Not in Kipling. And you mentioned adoption comes up in the Tigger movie. I don't remember adoption as a theme in the A.A. Milne Winnie the Pooh series. It is not a theme. They just all are agreeably coexisting in the 100-acre wood. They don't angst about how they got there. They just are there. They don't wonder about their pasts, and they don't go searching. But in the modern versions, of course, you know, they do go searching. Uh, Tigger in the, in the Tigger movie becomes unhappy. He goes on a quest, doesn't find his family, ends up back at the Hundred Acre Wood, surrounded by all his, his friends, you know, Kanga and Roo and Owl and, well, Pooh, of course, and Piglet, and realizes that, oh, these are my real family. So, I mean, you never hear the word adoption but it, it was clearly uh, a narrative that was about someone becoming unhappy with their, quote, unquote, family, uh, looking for another family and then returning uh, to, you know, their adoptive family. What do you think is going on with these adoption stories and children's literature and film? What do children like to read about adoption? Adoption is a type of narrative, it's right up there with portal narratives where, you know, children are transported to uh, an alternative location and quest narratives uh, where, again, you moved somewhere else. All these narratives allow children to try out 
alternatives. They allow children to step away from having their futures, their identities uh, dictated by their parents and, you know, try to establish identities on their own. Almost invariably, the children do end up embracing the options offered by their parents, at least to a certain extent. I mean, not in, maybe not entirely. They, they might come to a, a kind of a, a truce where you got to understand I have to be an artist or you got to understand uh, I've got to be a mu- musician. No, I'm, you know, I'm not going to follow your footsteps in the law firm kind of thing. But there's generally a resolution where at least the parents and children understand that this, this choice has to take place. Even if, you know, the child ultimately returns to the birth family, it will be with the understanding I have established who I am. So do you think this was just the Disneyfication version that was going on that you're looking at? Or are writers themselves understanding that fundamentally kids really love this conflict that comes through adoption and identity search? Oh, yeah. It's not just Disney. It's everywhere you turn. It's in adult literature as well. I mean, I was just rereading Mansfield Park, for example, um, Jane Austen's Mansfield Park. It's there. It's there in Silas Marner. You have a child making a choice. She's been adopted. Uh, The biological family reappears. She makes the choice to stay with her adoptive family. Uh, uh, Choices in Jane Eyre. I mean, uh, Wizard of Oz. It's everywhere. It's interesting. As you mentioned this, I realize the sense of adoption, one form or another, is probably much more widespread than most of us have any idea. Oh, yes. Little Big Man is about choosing between cultures. Dances with Wolves is about choosing between cultures. Uh, the, The Giver, the entire narrative is set up about adoption because none of the children are biologically related to the people who raised them. Peter Pan, Midwife's Apprentice, everywhere you, uh, where you look, you find it. Are there any particularly recent books that you've read, children's books, that address this issue? Well, let's see, Caleb's Crossing. Caleb's Crossing, it is about someone moving from a biological family into an alternative family. And this is based, based on a historical incident, by the way. Uh, Caleb is the English name of a Native American. He lives with a white family to be acculturated into English culture. And he ultimately uh, goes to a university. Uh, unfortunately, he, he dies young. But he is crossing... I mean, the very name of the book, Caleb's Crossing, indicates that it's a book that is writing about the tensions between cultures, between families. The point of view, however, it's really told from the point of view of a white girl who is in that family, and she is also struggling with culture. She wants to write, she wants to be creative, and there's an expectation that she'll go in another direction. And so this illustrates something about, I think, these these narratives that in the end, they're not about adoption per se. So Caleb's Crossing is being used to set up a parallel. His struggle is very visible because it's transracial. Her struggle... She's understanding her struggle as she looks at his struggle. Her struggle might not be as dramatic, but by recognizing, oh, okay, what's happening to Caleb? It's happening to you as well. Uh, So that's why I think these narratives work for children and adults who are not adopted, because the authors will find ways to show that It's not so much adoption as the fact that choices are being made, decisions are being made, struggles are being worked through. I think you're so right. And I can remember being captivated by similar stories in my grade school years. Yeah, I think there's the recognition that this struggle is one that all children go through. Uh, You know, you're the reader, you're the child, you're not adopted, but you somehow recognize, ah, you know, I'm going through this too. 
Right. It allows it to be uh, presented very clearly, very dramatically. Again, it's this, as, as I said, it's the same reason children love portal narratives, narratives where somehow, you know, you have unhappy children and they're swept into a portal and they sort things out. And so adoption is simply a, a, a portal, but it's a portal into a place where you can sort through the struggle to figure out what you want to do with yourself and who you are going to be and what your future will be like. You sort through all those big questions in the context of playing around with alternatives. Kim Gaynor is a professor of English at Radford University. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.